morning, church. Hey, thank you. You know, when I first transitioned into this role of missions pastor last year after spending 25 years in student ministry, I started to read a lot of books to help me learn, to encourage me for ideas. And one of the very first books I read was one called, Is the Commission Still Great? by Steve Richardson. And in it, he shares a story. It's called, Why Carrots Aren't Enough. Now, I know that I've piqued your interest, and I'd like to share it with you today. In World War II Britain, night vision mattered. Cities went dark every night for six whole years. And this blackout strategy, it was effective. It hid the British cities and towns from the German bombers at night. But then it also wreaked havoc on civilian life. During the first month of the war, more than 1,000 people died on road accidents. While British civilians struggled with the darkness, the Royal Air Force, or the RAF, pilots didn't seem to be having the same problem. One particular pilot by the name of John Catsize Cunningham, he shot down over 20 Luftwaffe bombers in the dark over the course of the war, including three in one single night. Other RAF pilots were also having remarkable success spotting enemy planes in the dark black night sky. The British Air Ministry was more than happy to broadcast the secret to the RAF's nighttime prowess. And it was this, their pilots, they ate a lot of carrots. That's what they said. So this revelation, it kicked off this carrot-themed marketing campaign throughout the British Isles. The Ministry of Agriculture, it urged its citizens to grow and to eat carrots as a way that they too could combat this nighttime blackout blindness. The Ministry of Food, it published recipes from everything from carrot marmalade to carrot fudge. Posters lauding the benefits of carrot consumption, it plastered the cities and it, and it worked. The British public enthusiastically embraced this root vegetable, which became such a staple in gardens that by 1942, Britain had accumulated over 100,000 tons surplus of carrots. Carrot mania even overflowed into the United States with the New York Times publishing a report that said, carrots helped the British public navigate the blackout without running into lampposts and one another out on the streets. Even the Walt Disney Company got into the craze. They designed a family of cartoon carrots to be used in British food propaganda. But there was one problem with this carrot craze. It was a deliberate misdirect. While the carrots can help prevent night blindness caused by a vitamin A deficiency, they have no noticeable effect on a healthy person's ability to see in the dark. So why the ruse? You know, the promotion of carrots had actually served two purposes for the British government, neither of which had anything to do with night vision. First, there was the practical benefit. The carrots were easy to grow, and it helped make up for the lack of the meat and the sugar and other staples during this wartime food shortage. But the air ministry had a second, stealthier reason. And it's this. The more people talked about carrots, 
the less likely they were to notice that these RAF fighters had been fitted with the world's first air-to-air -air radar system. German high command may or may not have believed that the RAF pilots' alleged heavy consumption of Karis was responsible for the increase in bomber kills, but rumor has it that they started feeding carrots to their pilots too, just in case. Now, the connection between carrots and eyesight had just enough truth to actually sound plausible, which is the reason that it caught on so quickly and it has endured for so long. If you think about it, parents still tell their children that eating carrots will improve their eyesight. And most misperceptions are like this. They all contain just at least a little kernel of truth, and they address a felt need. The British were so tired of the darkness that the carrots actually offered them hope. And while eating extra carrots is unlikely to cause the average person any harm, imagine if these RAF or Royal Air Force pilots had believed the propaganda. What, if, what would have become of their wartime efforts if they had just only relied on carrots instead of their new radar displays. After sharing this story in this book, Richardson, he goes on to say this. He says, as followers of Jesus, we have a mission that is so much more important than any wartime strategy. We have been instructed to make disciples of every people group on this earth so that a truly global church may one day worship together before the throne of God. And we call that mandate the Great Commission. The magnitude of this mission is truly matched by its difficulty. Discipling the nations is considerably harder than shooting down bombers in the dark. Imagine explaining to someone from every one of the thousands of ethnic groups in the world, after mastering the nuances of every one of their languages, that 2,000 years ago, an infinite God provided a solution to a problem that many of them don't even realize that they have. And then convincing them to embrace a radical new way of life in countercultural communities under the authority of a Jewish carpenter who you insist is God's incarnate. How confident do you feel about this task? The Great Commission is the most ambitious undertaking in the history of the world. It involves hundreds of millions of people over a span of a thousand or more years. It involves hundreds of millions of people joining in on this. It encompasses a vast number of languages, cultures, and locations. No other endeavor, even the creation of the cosmos itself, compares with the audacity of God's redemptive plan. And adding shock to this astonishment is that God has entrusted this significant task to us, to weak-kneed men and women like you and me. At stake here are the reputation of God and the eternal destiny of hundreds of millions of souls. Are you excited? You ready to jump in? Listen, I want you to understand this morning that God is not going to allow his global redemption plan to fail. This plan, it cost his son his life. And so he's not going to allow it to fail. 
But given the complexity and the scale of the Great Commission, there are a lot of believers who struggle to understand what it is that Christ has truly called us to. And misunderstandings, they are a natural part of life, but there's much more to it than that. What I want to make clear this morning is something that I share in the Next Steps class that I teach every fourth Sunday, and it's this. The gospel has a very real enemy, and he knows that the accomplishment of our task signals his defeat. So he works overtime. He wants to distract and dissuade and discourage the church. He does everything in his power to misdirect Christians from what God is calling us to do. He uses deception and a distortion of God's will. He obscures God's plan, luring us to fixate on lesser priorities. Carrots, if you would. Our comfort, our preferences, our entertainment and our hobbies, our jobs, our families, our material possession, even our fears of inadequacy and failure. The enemy wants us both collectively and individually to trade in our core redemptive mission for a relatively safe existence in both our personal lives and in our church life. And what I want to encourage you to do this morning is do not fall for the con. Let's not be distracted by carrots. God has given us a radar that makes our purpose and our identity as Christians crystal clear. We need to stop being satisfied with the carrots in our life, and we need to be intentional about the way that we live. And this morning, I want to talk about how each one of us must intentionally live out our sentness. It's a word I'm going to use this morning, our sentness. God has sent us. By being committed to the Great Commission in our everyday lives for these cities and for all people around the world. And in order to do this, I want to share three things that as believers, I'm, I believe we must understand about our sentness. And the first thing we must understand in order to live out our sentness is that our God is a sending God. Our God is a sending God. All throughout Scripture, we see God sending his people. As we read throughout the Old Testament, we see God use people like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah to do his will. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is betrayed as the sovereign Lord who sends people, even angels, in order to announce and complete his redemptive mission. The Hebrew word to send, shalach, all right? That's a fun one to say. Say it with me, shalach. You got to really go from the back of your throat. Shalach. All right. Listen, this word, shalach, it's, it's used nearly 800 times in the Old Testament. And while its usage is most often found in a variety of non-theological phrases, it's used more than 200 times with God as the subject of that verb. In other words, it is God who commissions his people. It's God who sends. The Old Testament ends with God promising through the words of the prophet Malachi to send a special messenger as the forerunner to the Messiah. 
And then the New Testament opens with the arrival of this messenger in the, purpose, in the person of John the Baptist, who's described in Scripture as a man sent by God. Sending language is found all throughout the Gospels. It's found all through the book of Acts. It's, it's found in every epistle. However, possibly the most comprehensive collection of sending language is actually found in the Gospel of John, where the words sent and send are used nearly 60 times. The majority of these uses, it refers to the title of God as one who sends. And then Jesus is called the one who is sent. This is also really clear in another one of John's works. Uh, 1 John 4.10 and John 14, John 4.14, 1 John 4.14. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, big word there, sacrifice is what it means, for our sins. In verse 14 it says, and we have seen and testify that the Lord has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You know, in the Gospels, we also see how Jesus, the Son of God, how he sends, how he, how he sent out the 12 disciples, and then he sends out the 72. And just for a moment, I want to look at just a couple of these moments of these 60 times that the words sent and send are used in the Gospel of John. Before his death on the cross, we see Jesus praying to God his Father for his disciples. He's praying how God would use them and to help them understand their sentness, how he wanted to send them so that the world would know that it was God who had sent him. John 17, 13 through 23. He says, but now I am coming to you. So he's saying, God, Father, I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, so I don't just ask for these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Listen, that's us. He's praying for us as well. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, and they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them even as you love me. Jesus is praying here for unity and love amongst his followers so that the world would know that he was sent by God. And then, just a short time later, this though was after his burial, his death, his resurrection, the disciples, they're hiding in fear. They're afraid of what could happen to them. So Jesus appears to them, and he reminds them of their calling. He reminds each and every one of them of their sentness. 
John 20, 19 through 22, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being, lo uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so now, I am sending you. In these two passages here, Jesus makes it clear that he was not only sent himself by the Father, but now he himself is the sender. And he sends the disciples. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. With this sentence right here, Jesus is doing more than simply drawing a vague parallel between his mission and ours. Deliberately and precisely, he made his mission the model for us, the model for our mission. In other words, we must allow the doctrine of God, who's a sending missional God, to guide our thinking concerning our call in his church. Because God is a missionary God. God is a God who sends a missionary church. Jesus himself, he makes this clear in the Great Commission. He gives his final instructions here to his followers immediately before he ascends into heaven. And we read this every week. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, Go. Man, that's sending language, if I've ever heard it. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our God is a sending God. And we also understand that his son, Jesus, also sends each and every one of us who call ourselves believers, who call ourselves his followers, who call ourselves his disciples, he sends us into the world. So we have to understand that God is ascending God. And the second thing we have to understand in order to live out our sentness is that his son Jesus, Jesus himself is sending us out into the world. And over the next few minutes, I'd like to look closely at Matthew chapter 10 where we see Jesus sending out these 12 men, these 12 disciples. Now, we won't have time to read through each and every verse of this chapter this morning, but I do want to like, highlight a few important things about how this passage, it relates to us. Each and every one of us as individuals, it relates to us and to our sentness. And I want us to find encouragement in it this morning. You know, I think what we need to realize here as we read this, first of all, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, is that Jesus calls these 12 very ordinary men. It says, and he called um, to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. If you continue reading there, you're going to see that each of these men, they're listed by name. And they're all very common and ordinary, having jobs that were fishermen and tax collectors. 
Not to say there's anything wrong with those professions, but they were just ordinary jobs. And Jesus calls them. And what I want us to understand this morning is this. You don't have to be a so-called expert to follow his call. You don't have to have it all together and know every single thing to live out your sentness. Remember, Jesus doesn't call the equipped. As it's been said, he equips the called. Jesus gave these apostles his authority to do ministry. Jesus didn't go out and identify people with gifts for missions. He gave his followers these gifts that they would need for the mission that he was going to send them to. Matthew 10, 7 through, Matthew 7 and 8, it says, Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gives them a task to heal the sick, to raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus is calling them to go and do exactly what he had been doing in his ministry. The disciples are not just to watch Jesus any longer or to even continue to merely just go on learning from him. But they are to go out themselves as sent people to go out and replicate his ministry to others. Listen, these are life-changing words for these disciples. Now all of a sudden, the question is not, what do we believe that Jesus can do for us? But what do we believe that Jesus will do through us? That's a tremendous difference, wouldn't you agree? Man, what can God do for us? No, what, what, what can God do through us? This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Our sentness is never, ever about what we're capable of or not. It's about what God is capable of. And do we trust him to do it? You see, I think it, ex it exists in this tension between what God is at work doing and what he has called us to do, what we're working at. And both of these things, they work together. God is at work through us. The challenge implicit to all of us is this. Are we ready to be agents of the gospel? Are we ready? Are we willing to take on the mantle of what Jesus was doing and take his very mission to be our own? As we pick up in verse 8, it says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Jesus tells them to really go without anything. Don't go expecting things because of this. Understanding our sentness, it means above all that we trust in Jesus. We trust that Jesus will provide. Jesus is saying, don't trust on anybody else. Trust in me. It's exactly what happened when God's people were wandering through the wilderness. They learned to trust God to provide for their daily needs as he sent manna their way. And we have to be willing to do the same thing. We need to trust. We need to trust that God will provide what is needed and often much, much more than that. As we continue reading, Jesus makes it clear here that it's not going to be easy. He's not asking us to do something really easy. That's why so many of us get scared by it. So we have to trust in him. Picking up in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. 
As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What we need to see here, what we need to understand here, is that there were times even in Jesus' ministry when people turned away and they stopped following him. There were people who rejected him, people who didn't listen to him, people who disagreed with him. So why should we expect anything different for ourselves? Listen, success and failure, it's not up to us. Being faithful to Jesus is. You know, Mother Teresa often said, God has not called us to be successful, but to be faithful. That's what we're being called to do in our sentness. In verse 16, it says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For I, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Listen, I believe that just doesn't apply right here to these men. I believe it applies to us. When Christ calls us and he sends us and we're scared to death because we don't know what we're going to say, Jesus will fill our mouths. In 25 years of ministry, he's filled mine every time I've had the opportunity to talk to people. He just does. In verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. As we continue and we go to verse 32, it says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will, all, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you can relate. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Listen, Jesus says a a lot of really hard things here. Listen, he speaks of possible persecution that Christians might face. He speaks of family issues that might arise, and this can definitely cause a lot of worry and other distractions in our life. But it seems that Jesus is telling them and and he's telling us to stay focused on the mission that each and every one of us have been called to. It's easy to get distracted from our task, to get wrapped up in all sorts of other things, especially these days. There is so much that can distract us from our mission, to misdirect us and prevent us from seeing what God is up to in these cities and in this world. Stay focused. Jesus seems to be telling us to stay focused and to pay careful attention 
on what God is calling us to do and sending us to do in these cities and in this world. In verse 38, it says, For whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As we read these two verses, I think it's incredibly important for us to understand that as we've read these verses, where Jesus is sending his disciples out to replicate his ministry, at this point of scripture, the story is incomplete. Sure, the mission as it is, it would have been enough to keep their hands full, and it's all full of the gospel. But it's an incomplete gospel at this point. After all, the story of Matthew is telling us right here in Matthew chapter 10, this isn't where it ends. It ends in another sending story that we looked at earlier this morning, and we'll wrap up our service in a few minutes by looking at it again. The Great Commission. Because the book of Matthew, it's a book of two commissions or two sendings. The sending of the disciples here in Matthew 10, and then the sending of the disciples again after his resurrection in Matthew 28. And what happens between those two points in Scripture is incredibly important. Because up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' disciples have learned all about his power. But they had never seen him powerless. And they've seen him in his strength but they had not yet seen him in his weakness. And they would see both of these when Jesus went to the cross. Between these two commissions stands the truth of Jesus' suffering. Before they can receive the great commission, they have to follow Jesus on the road to the cross. And so do we. Because it's on that road that we finally, we can finally experience the full gospel of Jesus his life, his death, and his resurrection. So the gospel that we are called not only to receive, but to participate in, is to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And the last thing I want to point out this morning, it's our BCC big idea for this morning, is this. We are created. We were created by God to live sent. In Matthew 5, 13 and 16, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us what our identity is. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Listen, this is not an option. This is the norm. Christians are the salt of the earth and Christians are the light of the world. This is our identity. This is who we were created to be. So what kind of salt are you going to be? What kind of light are you going to be? Remember, this is not an option. People are watching us. If we claim the name of Jesus, people watch us. They, they watch what we do and how we live and the words that we say, the things we do. According to this verse, though, you mean it's, it's possible for salt to lose its saltiness? or lose its purpose? Then the answer we see is yes. 
And there are a lot of Christians who are living today who have not matured into Christ's very likeness. A lot of us are content with this fire insurance policy instead of discipleship relationship. And we have to get past this. From this perspective, members are viewed more, I'm sorry, so many Christians view the church as a vendor of religious goods and services. And from this perspective, members are viewed more as customers for whom the religious goods and services are produced. You know, a lot of churchgoers expect the church to provide a whole range of religious services, such as great worship music, children's programming, small groups, you name it. And I'm not saying that, that there's anything wrong with any of these things. I think we offer all these things at BCC, and I think we do them well. But to go back to our first story, sometimes I think they're possibly carrots. I think these are the type of things that can become distractions to our true calling and our sentness. How many of us have fallen into the trap of having a consumer mindset when it comes to the church and what we're wanting out of it, what we're looking for in it? Listen, we need to stop being satisfied with carrots and we need to be intentional about the way that we live. When we realize that God is ascending God and the Bible is the grand narrative of God's missional sending activity, we begin to view church a whole lot differently. We begin to understand that the nature of the church rooted in the very nature of God is missional. The people are called by God and they're sent by him to participate in his mission for these cities and for this world. Yes, as a church, we still gather together. We still worship together. We still take part in the things that the church offers. But the difference is we don't gather for our own sake. Instead, we gather for the sake of others. Or better yet, for the sake of God's mission. Listen, to be trained and to be sent out. That's the purpose of God's church. To be trained and then to be sent out. 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Great Commission is God's idea. It's not ours. Our confidence to engage in Great Commission work comes from the identity of the one who has called us and the resources that he has provided us with. And as we close this morning, I want to share the response of six men who God calls and sends in Scripture. In each of these moments, they made themselves available to God, as should we. In each of their responses, here I am. There's Abraham who in Genesis 22.1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. God's next words were that Abraham should take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. You see, when Abraham stepped into this call to be the father of the nation of Israel and the father of all who would inherit eternal life, he followed through his response with God in this verse and in this story. And the very next time he hears God's voice or that he answers in this way, it's when the angel calls out to him and he says, stop. And he says, here I am. Then there's Jacob in Genesis 31, 11. It says, the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And after this moment, Jacob went on to leave Laban. 
and begin the nation that would be named after him, Israel. In the latter part of Jacob's life, when God told him to move to uh, Egypt in Genesis 46-2, he responds again, here I am. God saved the nation through his son Joseph when Jacob moved his entire family to Egypt to survive the famine. In Exodus 3-4, we see it again when Moses heard God call him from the burning bush. And he responds, here I am. This action begins the exodus of the Jewish people of God out of Egypt. We see it again in 1 Samuel 3-4 when the Lord called to Samuel as a child while he was living with Eli the priest. Samuel was called while he was very young, so children, teenagers, God is calling and sending at your age. God used him in many ways, including anointing both Saul and David as the first kings of Israel. In Acts 9.10, we learn of Ananias. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. God uses Ananias in this moment to communicate with Saul, who would become Paul, about Jesus. Remember at the time of Saul's conversion of Paul's salvation, he had been terrorizing the Jews because of their faith in Christ. Ananias needed great courage to present himself to Saul and to lay hands on him so that he could become the body of Christ. And finally, probably my favorite one of all, in Isaiah 6, 8, we see God's commission to Isaiah, who went on to become a great prophet and telling in advance many of the things that were true of the Lord when he came to the earth to save it. Isaiah was used greatly by God, and I want to close this morning by looking at his response to God's calling. And I heard the voice of God saying, whom shall I send and who will go with us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Listen, let that be our intentional response to our sending God in these cities and all around the world. Send me, Lord, to prayer walk these cities. Send me, Lord, to give my time and my ability by serving and volunteering at one of our local mission partners. Send me, Lord, on a short-term mission trip with BCC next summer. Lord, send me to plant a church. Send me, Lord, wherever you want to use me, in my home, in my school, at my job, on my team, in these cities, and in this world. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this day. And Father, we thank you that you send us, that you trust us, and you entrust us with your word to send us into a world that is dark and does not know you. Father, our job is not done. There are over three billion people on this planet who've never heard the name of Jesus. There are people right here in the Quad Cities who have turned away from you. Father, they need to know about you and your son Jesus and your love for them. Here we are, Lord. Send us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.